Last week, um, Lanny was with us while Jared's on vacation, and this week, I get the opportunity to be with you um, and um, to take on a challenging psalm and to think about it with you. Um, So will you pray with me as we get started? Lord God, we are humbled to be able to come and to look at your word, that we are able to come before you in praise and worship and to be able to think about what you've said to us. I pray that as we think about this psalm this morning that you will guide us, help us to think about what suffering means for us, why you use it, and how we can glorify you in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Yeah, you probably have. Have you felt like that the waters of difficulty, the waters of struggle, of pain, of suffering, were just washing over you wave upon wave upon wave, and you're just trying your best to keep your head above the water? Have you felt like, okay, I'm crying out for help, but no one's hearing me? I've been abandoned. I'm all alone. This week we're looking at a psalm of David, Psalm 69, and he felt that way. The psalm was most likely written, people generally think that it was written while David was kicked out of the kingdom by his son Absalom. If you don't remember that story, go read 2 Samuel. Absalom comes in and just basically runs David out of town, and he goes off into exile with mockery behind him. So, understandably, King David, God's anointed man, was probably a little overwhelmed. So he writes this psalm, and through this psalm, which is basically just a prayer, as you heard Serlio powerfully read it, what David does is he helps us see what prayer looks like what godly prayer looks like in a time of overwhelming difficulty and pain and suffering. And as you heard, this is a lengthy psalm. And so uh, we don't have time to do like a systematic exposition of each and every verse. Um, But we are going to look at the bulk of this text, and here's why. I want to show you in this psalm the example David gives us of how we can pray when we're drowning. How we can pray when everything is up against us and we feel like there's nowhere we can go. I want to help you see 12 principles for how to pray when you're overwhelmed, okay? 12 principles. Now, I know Caleb looked at me like, 12? (laughs) Bro, (laughs) can't too. Like, that's not standard sermon protocol, brother. 12? (laughs) Three, maybe four if you're crazy. But uh, 12? No, no, no. Okay, don't think of these as like points for a sermon. Like, okay, point number one, I'm going to spend 10 minutes on it. Point number two, no, no, no. That's not, we're going to be here for two hours. Don't worry. Okay, these are 12 principles. We're going to spend a couple minutes on each one of them. The reason I'm doing this is because I think there's a great amount of beauty in how we can see multiple principles from one text of Scripture. And in this case, this one prayer is exposing so many different elements of what prayer should look like for us, especially prayer when we're suffering. So in your prayer, you may already like do six, eight, ten of these, I don't know. Um, but I hope this will help you like, think about different aspects of prayer, help you think about prayer that you hadn't thought about before. And I hope it will give you a pattern so that when you encounter suffering, when you encounter pain, trials, whatever, or maybe since you're encountering suffering and pain and trials right now, whatever you come against, you're going to have a, a, a way to pray. 
You're going to have principles that will guide you in that. So we're going to look at 12 principles for praying through suffering from Psalm 69. For those of you who are note takers, hopefully this will help you kind of stay plugged in too, right? Because you're going to be listening for the next one. Here we go. Number one, first principle for prayer when you're suffering. Cry out to God. Look at verse number one. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. What's his prayer? He's praying to God to save him. And he explains why. He says, well, it feels like I'm about to drown. (laughs) He feels overwhelmed. His feet are like stuck in this metaphorical mud. uh, And the waters of difficulty are rising and rising. And he can't escape. He's stuck. He doesn't know what to do. He's weary with crying out. His throat is parched. His eyes are growing dim, waiting for God. He's crying out. And that's what we have to do when we struggle. Why? Because (laughs) what's our first instinct? To turn to some, the nearest idol for comfort. To say, what is the thing that can give me satisfaction, that can please me right now? Right? Just listen to any country song, right? What does everybody run to uh, when trouble comes? Like, let me grab a bottle. Like, that's the best idol for suffering. Don't run to the idols in your suffering. Don't cry out to Facebook. Don't cry out to Uh, worldly wisdom and say, hey, world, help me. Fix this. I need your help. It is absolutely good for us to voice our pain to those who are close to us, who love us. And so, I mean, we should find comfort in in the counsel of our family, um, our church community. But ultimately, even with them, our cry for help is not to them. Our cry for help is to God, and they see it and come to help us and and aid us and, and, and be with us. So that's the first principle. Uh, of prayer when we're suffering. Cry out to God. Second principle, identify the problem. Verse 4 says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. So when you're dealing with trouble, when difficulties surrounding you, it's really easy to get like so overcome with all the stuff that you can't really identify like what's actually happening. What's really going on? There's just a flood of problems and you can't see what the root of the pain actually is. So it's helpful in that time for us to pause, step back, and try to recognize what the problem actually is. What's the source of this suffering? In verse 4, David recognizes that the cause of his suffering is ultimately injustice. Right? He says, people hate him without cause, people attack him with lies, uh, they expect him to repay what he hasn't taken. Those people are numerous and mighty, <laughs> So the problem is that a bunch of mighty people are treating him unjustly. And by identifying that core problem, what David can then do is he can ask God for help with it. He gets identified what the problem is so he knows what to ask God for. And we're going to see him ask God for help with those problems exactly in just a minute. But notice that he is identifying the problem at hand. So we have to learn to identify the problem when we pray. Principle three. Confess your sin. Verse 5 says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now, I want to be really careful here because um, I don't want to give you the impression at all that, um, that our suffering and difficulty is due to our sin. That's an unbiblical principle, um, that all suffering is due to our sin. Um, it is due to sin. It is due to the fallenness of the world. But your suffering may not be because of your sin in that moment. We know that God ordains trials, that he ordains suffering to sanctify us and to grow us. He has purpose in it. 
And sometimes the trial is due to our sin. Sin has consequences. So sometimes you do find yourself in a place where it's like, yeah, this is my fault. But sometimes it isn't. But still, either way, it is vital for us to confess our sins to God in prayer. Because maybe when you do this, you might realize that there is a sin pattern in your life that is linked to the cause of your suffering. Maybe it is part of it. Or maybe confessing the sin is going to help you clear your conscience and say, you know, this isn't me. This is absolutely an injustice. Maybe part of your suffering is guilt over something that you didn't really do wrong. And so by confessing your sin and recognizing, I didn't do anything here, you feel the weight of that. Part of your suffering is released because, like, I, I, I didn't do this. I have no fault here. Or maybe it really is nothing to do with your sin. It's just injustice. It's just persecution. Or it's just like the refining fire of the Lord that's purifying you. But when we confess our sin, we are practicing this pattern of confession and forgiveness, which is life-giving to a Christian, life-giving to a believer. That's why we do it every week here. That's why we confess our sins and we hear this assurance of pardon, because that is encouraging and strengthening to us when we bring our sin before God and accept his forgiveness. So confess your sin. Principle four, pray for the good of others. It's really easy for us, um, and I think probably as Americans especially, um, in a time of suffering, we can be really self-centered in our prayer. And that's natural. It's a natural tendency, right? When you're hurting, you're thinking about you. But when we look at the prayers that are found in Scripture, they aren't all about the person who's praying. Um, look at Paul's examples in, in his letters, for example. He, I mean, he very rarely prays for himself. He may ask for prayer for himself, but he's praying for other people. Look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. The first half of it is, hey, may your name be holy. May your will be done here on this earth. And then it's like, oh, and give us our bread too. And then the last one is, and let us not sin against your holiness. It's way more about God than it is about us. Prayer shouldn't be primarily about me. So while David does spend a good bit of time here praying for his own situation, and justly so, he also prays for others. Just look at verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. David's praying that other people won't be negatively affected by the trial that he's going through. He recognizes, like, there's, you know, there's ramifications here. My suffering may affect other people. Um, so, like, last week, I was sick last Sunday. That's why I wasn't here. Um, and my sickness was by, <laughs> not a big deal. So don't, you know, everybody's like, oh, I'm so glad you're like, yeah, it was, I wasn't deathly ill or anything. I, I was just in bed for two days, basically. Um, but it would be really silly for me to say, yeah, that trial of sickness only affected me. I was the only one that had anything to do with it. I mean, since it was Sunday, uh, it affected Kent, who filled in for me with very short notice during the 9.30 class. Thank you for that again. Uh, it affected the people in the membership class who, you know, it got postponed. It affected Cindia, who had already prepped all this stuff and had to like, oh, no, you're just changing last minute. Right? So lots of people were affected by me not, me not being here. It affected my other employer, he said he was going to be here, and he's not. So it affected him because he could get nothing done without me there on Monday. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but even more than that, it affected my family. My kids couldn't do anything with me. I couldn't do anything with them. And it really affected my wife, who suddenly has to take care of everything by herself and take care of a sick man, which is like the greatest difficulty anyone could ever encounter. 
So how narrow-minded would it be for me to say, my sickness only affected me. This trial is only, only my problem. We have to take time in our prayer to shift our focus off of us and pray for other people who are affected by what we're going through. So that's principle number four. Pray for other people. Principle five. Practice your affection for God. Verses nine and ten. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David here is kind of rehearsing for himself his love for God. In this case, he's also recognizing there's a connection between his love for God and the trouble that he's found himself in. But when we practice our love for God in this way, when we rehearse to ourselves our affection for him, a lot of times what we can do is we can see where our suffering is related to, like serving him, to loving him. But even when our suffering isn't like a direct result of our faithfulness to God, we can still see his purpose better in our trials when we are declaring our love for him. Let me think about it this way. Maybe this will help you see it. Our natural response when trials come is, why are you doing this, God? What is this? What did I do, for, what did I do to deserve this? What are you doing to me? So if instead of that, if we turn to God proclaiming our love for him, proclaiming our love for his word, proclaiming our love for his works, then what we end up doing is worshiping him instead of whining. If we're practicing our affection, then we're worshiping instead of just whining. So practice your affection for God when you pray. The sixth principle, number six. This is a doozy. Y'all ready for this one? Trust the Lord's timing. Look at verse 13. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. This has got to be one of the most difficult things to do when you're suffering. It's got to be. To be willing to wait. To be willing to say, you know, this may not be over tomorrow. God may not rescue me next week, next month, next year. This may last for a long time. This trial may be here for a long time. And to wait for God and say, I trust you. I trust your timing to be perfect. I trust that you know exactly what you're doing. He will deliver exactly when we should be delivered. We're going to get to, in just a minute, we're going to get to why you can trust that. So if you're wondering why you, well, how can I know to trust him? We'll get there in just a second. But trust the Lord's timing. Principle number seven. See, I told you these were going to go quick. Y'all were all nervous. We're moving right on through them, okay? Number seven, ask for deliverance. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Okay, this one's <laughs> like, well, that's obvious. Yeah, when I'm suffering, of course I'm going to pray to be delivered. I'm going to ask God for deliverance. That's like the first thing I'm going to do. Cry out to God, ask Him for deliverance. You didn't have to teach me this one, Ryan. I got it down. Now, I want you to think about this. Don't take for granted the power of, of making a request to God. I mean, we're all here for our, I don't know, some of you weren't. We studied Hebrews, and we went through it. We, we had this whole talk about 
Jesus is our high priest. And this incredible privilege we have as his people to step into the throne room of holy God and to ask him for something and for him to hear us and answer our prayer. That's insane that a holy God would stoop down and and listen to us. And yet, we can. We can ask him. We can speak to him. And he hears us and he answers us. I mean, Jesus was really clear. He says, like, ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door will be open to you. You have not because you ask not. That's pretty clear stuff. Now, be careful. We don't, <laughs> we don't take this at all to mean that God just gives us whatever we want when we ask him. That's not what we're saying. God's not a genie. Um, and we absolutely reject that whole, like, the word of faith idea that would say, hey, that physical blessing is coming. It's just a request away. No. What we know about God from, from his word is that he answers prayer when it aligns with his will. So when we pray, we should be praying for what aligns with his word, what aligns with his character, for what we know is true about him. And so, in this case, when we ask as God's people, when we pray, God, deliver me, we are praying a prayer that he will answer. He will. It's not a, it's not a maybe. It's not a please, please maybe rescue me. I don't know if you're going to or not, but please do it. No, it's he will answer that prayer. When you pray, deliver me, he will answer it. Why? How do I know? Because I can look at how he's revealed himself in his word. He's shown himself again and again and again and again to be a God of deliverance. Look at the Old Testament. He delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them from their hunger and thirst as they wandered in the wilderness. He delivered them from their enemies as they entered into the promised land. He delivered them from their enemies while they were in the promised land. He delivered them from exile multiple times because they broke his covenant and people came and took them out of the promised land to a different place. He delivered and delivered and delivered. And then he sends Jesus who delivers completely all who believe in him. God is a God of deliverance. So we can absolutely trust that he will answer our prayer for deliverance. He will answer that prayer for deliverance. It just may not be in the timing that we would prefer. It may not be until we cross that great horizon with clouds behind and life secure, knowing that that calm is going to be better because of the storms that we endured. It might not be till then, but he will deliver. He will. And guess what? Here's a cool thing. When you pray for deliverance, when you actually ask him for it, and do it out loud. Pray out loud. Do it. In your car, you look silly. It's okay. When you actually ask him, and then that deliverance does come on this side of eternity, how is that going to strengthen your faith in his goodness? How is that going to like, help him know that he loves you? How does that drive you to praise, to honor him, to, to worship him? Because God heard me and he answered me. It is way more difficult to recognize and be thankful for a deliverance that we never even asked for. So ask. Ask him to deliver you. Principle eight. Remind yourself of God's character. Look at verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. 
What is David doing here? He's citing God's love and goodness and mercy. He's proclaiming God's character to God. And there are a lot of aspects of God's character that we could proclaim in this way. His kindness, his compassion, his patience. We list many, many of them that we could proclaim to him. And don't think that this is like manipulative. Um, like, well, maybe if I remind God of who he is, if I tell him, hey, you're, you're good, remember? That, oh, now he's going to give me what I want. That's not what we're saying. It's not like a kid buttering up the parents before they ask for something. Uh, like I've heard this one in my house. Mom, God, mom, you're the best baker. Golly, you're a good baker. Can I have another cookie? Huh? Yeah? That's what, no, that's not, God's not manipula- <laughs> manipulated by us telling him who he is. Like he's going to, okay, yeah, you're right, I am good. Rather, we are like teaching ourselves. We're, we're training ourselves that we can trust him because of who he is, what he's done. We look at his character and we say, yes, I can trust you. So in, if we're using that same analogy, it's more like when the kid uh, is coming up against this, this thing that mom has baked that looks a little scary, and he's like, I'm not sure about this, but he reminds himself, no, my mom is the best baker. I can trust that this is going to be good, that this is good for me because I, I know who she is, I know what she does. We gain confidence in God when we remind ourselves of his character. So do that. Remind yourself, who is God? Number nine, principle number nine. Remind yourself of God's attributes. Now you're like, hold on a second. We just talked about character, now you're talking about attributes. What's the difference? You have a point. They are very closely related. Um, So let me make the distinction here. When we talk about the attributes of God, like if you're talking about systematic theology kind of stuff, the attributes of God are often split kind of into two different groups. Um, There's the attributes that we can emulate, the attributes that we can have too, and then the attributes that only God has that make him above and beyond anything we can understand. So here, when I say remind yourself of the character of God, I'm kind of talking more about those things that we can also have. Love, mercy, kindness, patience. Those are things that we can do too, but they are exemplified. They're perfect in God, okay? When I say remind yourself of the attributes of God, what I'm really saying is think about What makes God God? Think about the attributes that he alone possesses that make him unique and oh, almighty over everything. So if you were like pulling out a systematic theology text and you flip to the section on attributes of God, it's usually right at the beginning, you'd find things like eternal, eternal nature of God, his holiness, his set-apartness, his uh, his eminence, which means he's dwelling with us, his transcendence, which means he's above and beyond, Uh, immutability, he doesn't change, impeccability, he doesn't sin, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing. Those are things that make God God. We can't be like that. And we see David practice this in verse 19. He says, you know my reproach. You know my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. What's he recognizing? God knows everything. God knows his pain. God knows the problem. God knows the people responsible. And he is proclaiming, God, you are omniscient. You know everything. And reminding himself of that is a comfort to David. God's nature is a comfort to us. So when we dwell on his attributes, the things that make God God, we learn to trust him more because we see who he is better. Guess what? You can't do this if you're not in the word. There's no way that you can know who God is if you don't read about who he is. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself to us. So if you aren't reading about who he is, you will not know who he is. And when this moment comes in suffering and pain and trial, and you're like, okay, number nine on Ryan's list said, remind yourself of the attributes of God. God, you are. 
it'll be a little bit more difficult to remind yourself if you don't know them. So learn them, know them. Meditate on who God is regularly. Principle number 10. Pray for justice to be served. This is an easy one. Y'all all like this one. Everybody's ready to pray for justice to be served. Look how David prays for his enemies. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You heard Surly read it better than I could anyway. Uh, let their own table before them become a snare. When they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see. Make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Um, add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Ooh. Now, if you have studied the Psalms before, you've probably heard the phrase imprecatory psalm. This part is, is kind of what we call an, an imprecatory psalm. It's this psalm which calls for judgment on the enemies of God. And it sounds pretty harsh. If you just, just were reading it, you'd be like, wow, that's, that's rough, David, man. That's, like, that's not how we're supposed to. Jesus said, pray for our enemies and love our enemies, right? Here's the thing to remember. David isn't just praying for God to crush people he doesn't like. Right? It's not one of those things where it's like, well, I'm up for a promotion, and so's that guy. I'll just pray that God crushes him. Yeah? No, that's not. We're, we're not. we're not to call God's judgment on our bullies. What David is actually doing is, like he already has, he's just calling on God to be who God is. God is just. It's one of his attributes. He's a God of perfect justice, and he's trusting in the justice of God. He knows that God is not going to allow those who hate him, who reject him, to go without punishment. God will absolutely, make no mistake, God will deal with the wicked. He will. So here David's asking God to do what he does, what he alone can do, to bring real, actual, final justice to our unjust situations. Now, does that mean that we should pray that God is going to destroy anyone who causes us pain or suffering? Certainly not. I mean, even David himself, back up in verse 6, he prayed for others. What did he say? Let, the, let not those who hope in you be put to shame. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor. So, we should listen to what Christ said and pray for our enemies. We should long for those who persecute us, who harm us, who cause us to suffer. We should long for them to hope in God so that they will not be put to shame. We should pray for them to seek God so that they will not be brought to dishonor. But we can also recognize that if they remain God's enemy, he will deal justly with them. And it is right and good for us to pray that his justice will be served. Principle number 11. Praise God for his deliverance. All right, this one seems kind of odd, right? This is the same prayer. We're still in the same psalm. And just a few verses ago, David was saying, Deliver me. And now I'm saying, praise God for his deliverance. What? There's no reason for us to think when we look at this psalm that, you know, that verse 30 was written six months later when everything's back to normal. No reason to think that. There's no evidence. It was written at the same time. So David in, this, in one breath is saying, Lord, deliver me. In the next breath he's saying, I will praise the name of God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. What? He's saying, praise God because, what does he say? He hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. He's praising God because God delivers. 
And he's asking for deliverance, and he knows who God is. So what that means is that even in the middle of suffering, we can offer God thanksgiving for his deliverance because we are so certain of his deliverance. We can count on it. It reminds me of uh, in Romans where, where Paul uses those, those past tense verbs, and he says, those who are foreknown, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. And he says it in the past tense, like he glorified them already. What? I'm not glorified. But that glorification is so certain that I can count on it. It's as if it's already come to pass. It is so for sure. I remember I got a text or an email one time. Somebody was asking me to do something, and at the end of it, they put TIA, and I wasn't really familiar with that, so I looked it up, and it means thanks in advance. I don't know if you've seen that before. And so that person basically was saying, like, I'm sure that you're going to do this thing. Or maybe they were just trying to butter me up and be like, hey, I'll just thank you beforehand, and that way you'll feel obligated to go ahead and do it. But I like to think that they were just so sure that I was going to come through for them that they were able to thank me before I ever did it. Right? They thought me reliable enough to preemptively thank me. But God is way more reliable than I am, and so we can thank him before we receive the thing that we're thanking him for. It's a crazy ability that we have uh, to be able to be thankful for something we don't yet have. His deliverance is certain. So when we're suffering, lift up your voices in worship. Lift up your voice in worship when you are suffering because praising God is, is life-giving to us. He alone is worthy of praise, and we can magnify him because he hears us, he delivers us. That's crazy. And it may sound counterintuitive to you to be like, worship when I'm suffering? What are you talking about? How can I possibly do that? Well, I can tell you from experience, and I know several other people that you could talk to and could tell you from experience that one of the most soul-nourishing things you can do is to worship God in the midst of your suffering to sing praise and worship and honor him in the hard times. It's the best time for you to do it, really. It's easy to sing his praises when everything's going great. But to stop and worship him in suffering, it's, it's a beautiful gift that we have. All right, number 12, last one. Look at that. We, we did, we're doing great on time. I could, I could add another three to this. Number 12, trust that God will keep his promises. All right, look how David ends his psalm. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. The people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So how does he finish? How does he complete this song of lament, this song of, Lord, help me, I'm stuck? He finishes it with <laughs> reminding himself and everybody else listening, hey, God's going to keep his promises. In this moment, the kingdom, he calls it Zion here, Jerusalem, has been taken from David, and it's in peril. It's in trouble. It's being held by the wrong people. Yet he knows that God's going to save Zion. Why? Because he said he would. He promised that he would give this promised land to his people. He promised that they would possess it, and David trusts that he's going to keep that promise. He promised that those who love God's name will dwell in the land that God is giving them, and David trusts that he's going to keep that promise. And we can do the same thing. We can trust God's promises to us. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised, as we sang this morning, 
that he will be with us. He will strengthen us and uphold us. He has promised that he will overcome the world. He has promised that he will guide us and direct us, that he will guard us and protect us. He has promised that, guess what? That our trials produce character and perseverance. That there's a purpose in the hard thing we're going through. He has promised that even in that hard stuff, he he is giving us peace that surpasses all understanding, joy that's new every morning, and his love that never ends. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, and so we should trust him to do what he said he's going to do, especially when we're overcome with suffering and struggle and trial and pain. We can trust him to do what he said he's going to do because he keeps his promises. So, step back. Twelve principles for how to pray when you're suffering based on Psalm 69. Number one, cry out to God. Number two, identify the problem. Number three, confess your sin. Number four, pray for the good of others. Number five, practice your affection for God. Number six, trust the Lord's timing. Number seven, ask for deliverance. Number eight, remind yourself of God's character. Nine, remind yourself of God's attributes. Ten, pray for justice to be served. Eleven, praise God and thank him for his deliverance. And number twelve, trust that he will keep his promises. And I hope that this can be a pattern for you. For your prayers when, like as James says, you face trials of various kinds. Because guess what? You will. You probably already have. Maybe you are right now. You will again. In this life, we will encounter suffering. And when you do, know that you are seen and you are loved. You are not the only one who is struggling. You are not the only one who has ever struggled. You are not the only one who will ever struggle. You're not the only one suffering and hurting. You aren't the only one who has endured difficult, really difficult things. In fact, when we really look at this psalm, we see something incredible. Because at first, we look at it, and it's about David. And it is about David. It's written by David, about David. But when you look closely, this psalm is about the true and better David. This psalm is about a suffering servant who came to suffer for you. So just humor me for a second and listen to a few of these verses while you think on the crucifixion of Christ. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who destroy me, those who attack me with lies. For it's for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Can you see him tipping over tables? The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. You know my reproach, my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, and I found none. 
they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus suffered the greatest injustice that's ever occurred. Felt pain we can't imagine. Endured torture that he didn't deserve. So in Psalm 69, yes, we get a glimpse of the agony of this king who's had his throne taken from him, who's being mocked and run out of town. But we also see the deeper agony of the king, the king of kings, the king who wore a crown of thorns, and the king who was mocked, and instead of being run out of town, he was hung on a cross and killed. He suffered so that you could be delivered. (laughs) So when you suffer, you're not alone. And no, the deliverance, (laughs) the deliverance that you asked for is sure, because he's already done it. He's already delivered you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are overcome, (laughs) so overcome by your goodness to know that you deliver us, sinful people, that while we were still sinners, Jesus came and died for us so that we could be delivered. And even though in this life we come against suffering, pain, trials, difficulty, and you've promised that we would if we follow you, We know that you are with us. That your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And that even though we are sitting at a table surrounded by our enemies, we know that you are just, you are good, and you deliver. So help us as we pray, as we go through difficulty, to lift our eyes to you, praising you and trusting you to do what you've said, to be who you are, and to bring deliverance that only you can bring. In Jesus' name, amen.